the Enterprise Digital Podcast with Ian Aitchison and Barclay Ray, navigating the ever-expanding service management maze. Okay, welcome to yet another episode of the Enterprise Digital Podcast. Really excited to be here. This is probably episode 304, but I think it's actually episode 26. Uh, and I'm still the same person, Barclay Ray, and I've got Ian Aitchison. Ian, how are you doing this week? Once again, always happy to be here. Very well, thank you. Yes, yes, very good. Now, normally at this point, you excite our audience with some yeah. trivia. And, and yes. you know, I wonder what that might be today. Once more, I come furnished with trivia. Uh, not, not, about, um, not about puppies. Uh, not about varnishing wood, you'll be glad to hear that this one, sometimes I come back to this topic of how work is changing and the the impact of the pandemic and technology on working remotely and then back to the office and all of this topic and how machines are replacing people because people don't want jobs. All of this a fascinating stat came through. Lovely listeners, I'm sorry, this is UK focused information, the Office of National Statistics in the UK. I'm quoting here, businesses are reporting labour shortages but there were over 3 million more people aged 16 to 64 not working in the UK in Q2 2021 compared with Q2 2019. Um, so more people not working, obviously pandemic related. Of the 13 million or so not working during the period, about 7 million said they didn't want a job. And I think it's really interesting, this this shift to work being almost optional, going into an office being something some people just don't want to do, that whole topic. So um, no puppies, no jokes. So it's just an interesting stat that popped up literally two hours ago. So, I mean, if people don't want a job, presumably they, they don't want a house and, they, you know, they don't want to eat and they don't want to go on holiday and all that sort of stuff as well, or do they expect to be? Well, you're leading us towards what's it, universal basic income topics. And there's a whole podcast series we can have if we go down that path. And it's funny how those sort of topics come up more and more when you start talking about automation and technology and changing the need for people to do the jobs. How, what do people need to do? All sorts of good things, creative things. Okay, well, that leads us very nicely when you talk about automation and technology um, to welcome our guest. And I'm delighted to to welcome Shane. Shane Carlson, how are you? I am doing quite well, my friends. How are you today? Well, we're apparently we still want to have jobs. We're the sort of people that we're the mugs that are still going to be working. But it, in, Indeed. You know, it's interesting that you bring up that statistic. I was actually talking to my dermatologist of all people yesterday about the, the unemployment rates and this sense that a lot of small business owners and, and other government wonks have about the fact that people are just refusing to work because they're being paid to stay home, especially here in the U.S. And I think people are underestimating the number of individuals who have simply left the labor market. You know, either they were close to retirement, they they were in a two-income earning home and decided that staying home with the children was more important than having two incomes. And I think a lot of people are, are simply making do either with one job that's higher paying than what they had previously uh, or just simply deciding, like that statistic you read off, Ian, that they just don't want to be in the labor market. They don't want a job right now. And you know how they afford that luxury, uh, we don't know. And as it leads into the concept of automation and universal basic 
basic income. These are a lot of topics we should have been talking about 10 years ago uh, as a society that I think we've, we've overlooked and are going to be forced into those conversations in the very, very near future. Yeah, I think it's really fascinating. Now's not the time or podcast to dig deep into that, no. but another time I would love to. It's fascinating. The point you made, Shane, is that some of us were talking about these things a few years ago, but nobody was listening. And it's taken a yeah. pandemic to actually kick that into the into the public domain and get things get things moving. I know a guy who has a podcast that tackled that topic once or twice. Okay. Um, Shane also is available for podcasts and weddings and, and other things like that. Shane, just just for those of you, because you are, I mean, you are the director of enterprise architecture at uh, ServiceNow, and that's that's a fantastic title. Tell us just briefly a little bit about you know what sort of things you've done and how you've got to where you are. Yeah, that's a that's a, a great question and an interesting journey. Um, you know, a lot of people don't know this about my background. Uh, my foray into technology actually started while I was a prison guard some 25 odd years ago, almost 26. And I took that job simply because in the area that I was in at the time and the, and the time, there weren't a lot of great paying technical jobs and uh, very few that had great benefits as you know, here in the States, you know, we, we tie our health insurance to our employment, which makes things fun and interesting. And so I, I took this job. It was with the, the, the state at the time. They had good benefits and decent pay. Well, I kind of studied to be break more into the technical world. And uh, spent about a year, a little over a year doing that while I uh, got some chops on you know, Microsoft products and some other things and was given an opportunity to be on a technical support team for a emerging online payroll product, uh, which ultimately led to me spending eight years at a company called Intuit, where I helped build out their approach to global service desk, one of the first companies in the U.S. to really uh, embrace Idle at the time. I, you know, I always tell an interesting story that there were so few people doing Idle in the U.S. at that time frame that we had to fly in a test proctor from uh, Canada to actually test the first 10 of us who went through and got our Idle Foundation certification at that time, throwing it back to the blue book and the red book uh, days. And uh, after leaving into it, I was recruited to work for a couple different companies, helping them set up their governance, their IT, run their service delivery organizations for service desk, desktop services, and those sorts of things, which ultimately led me into the consulting world where I did a lot of service management consulting uh, in the mid to late aughts and ultimately ended up working for a number of small boutique consulting firms that got acquired by much bigger consulting firms which introduced me to uh, a lot of the ITSM tools of the era, including ServiceNow, and spent about 10 years on the partner side of the ServiceNow world and ultimately ended up in ServiceNow, driving a lot of uh, executive architecture from a pre-sales point of view, working with most of our very large and interesting customers. Fantastic. And that's how I got here. It's a great history. It needs to come with a diagram, really, doesn't it? Like an architecture. An architectural, yeah, a yeah. reference architecture. Yeah. To my background, which most of it's uninteresting, but, uh, but, but, but I've met some very interesting people along the way, like the two of you. Did I get, did I hear prison guard there at the start? You did. You did. It's, it's an interesting, you know, not a lot of people start their technical career uh, by uh, locking people in cages. Yeah. Uh, I definitely decided it wasn't for me. And the interesting part of it is you learn so much about humans and how humans behave in, a, in an environment like that. And I always tell people, it's a microcosm of society at large. 
Uh, you've got every walk of life and, you know, it's very easy to be reductionist and boil uh, all prisoners down to kind of the same make and model. Uh, when in reality is it's just like everyone you meet in, in the outside world is, you know, people who have made decisions that ultimately, ultimately led to them uh, being inside. And the only thing that separated uh, many of us who had the keys and were on the outside of the, uh, of the cells was, you know, one decision. So uh, for me, the human side of it was always the most interesting and remembering that those folks there are simply there because they made different decisions than I did kind of helped me in that regard, but it wasn't something that I was interested in doing long-term for a lot of different reasons. It's really interesting that, I mean, it, I, I think we play that down a lot. There's just been some publicity in the UK about how they're needing to use prisoners to do some work, you know, HGB driving and various other things because we have problems with supply chain here. We'll go into that. But actually, we, we, there's a company in the UK, it's called Timpson. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but they have at all the stations and at, at high streets, they have um, shoe repair and key cutting and and, all, and they're run as, an, as small independent businesses but Timpsons oversee it and, and have lots of really good um, lots of really good things you know they, they, they if somebody's not working out they pay them to leave and all that that kind of stuff but they take they use ex-cons they, they always go and recruit people from from prison and give them a second chance and I think we don't do enough of that Okay. I, I absolutely agree. I, I have a, a, a close friend who had a cousin who recently was came out of prison. And one of the things we saw working in that industry way back is that the more support systems that people have coming out of that situation, the more likely they are to be successful and not reoffend. Uh, the less support they're given upon release back into society and reintegration to society, the more likely they are to reoffend and end back up in the inside. So, I think as a society, we have a lot of work to do to to figure out how do we how do we take these folks who have served their time, which was their punishment, and reintegrate them and and bring them back and make them productive members of society, and which is what most of them want. So, I think you know we, we, t- we tend to toss them out in the bin but you know th- th- there's definitely value there and and just to sort of wind this little bit up what a great allegory if we think of people that have done their time in it and now they're looking at moving beyond it and we're opening the doors and they're going into the wider business to deliver value with a, a wider concept of service and value outside of the constraints of the gates of it well, I think we, we can say that we've all served our time in that to some extent. So um, thank, thanks for that introduction, Shane, um, and we'll move on to our conversation. Right, so that was a great intro and, and we went down a, a, an interesting little path there. Shane, the, the topic of this podcast really is, a, is about this ubiquitous term, enterprise service management, which has been around for a long time. Um, there's lots of different ways of looking at it and describing it. What's your sort of helicopter view of, yeah, and, and particularly given where you are at the moment as, an, as you know, director of enterprise architecture, uh, it's a very lofty and, and you know, looking down um, seeing things from perspective. Is it a thing? Well, what is it? What should we be doing about it? What's your take on it, Shane? 
Yeah, it, it, enterprise service management is definitely a thing. Um, you know, it's something I think many of us in the industry have been talking about in some form or fashion for 20 plus years or more. You know, this concept of shared services and the fact that services in general are something that are can be consistently delivered. At, at their core, when you boil it down, it's someone over here on the left with a need and someone over here on the right with a capability to deliver for that need. And you know the, the, the messy part in the middle is where we figure out how do we connect that person with that need to the person who's capable of, of supporting that need. And you, know, you have those sorts of needs all across uh, organizations. And, and really, at the end of the day, it boils down to uh, oftentimes an employee experience, partner experience, customer experience, all of those different things ultimately are some form of service management in and of itself. And you talk about ESM being this kind of you know, nebulous term that's, that's encompassing of a lot of different things. And the way I try to explain it to, to folks when I'm talking about it is ESM isn't this one thing that you, you know, open the box, unpack, and now you have the ability to deliver enterprise service management. It's often a, a series of waypoints on a journey where you're starting at a place where you say, you know what, we have 17 organizations who are all delivering some form of service. And we'd like to be more consistent about that from an end user point of view to make sure that when someone needs something in what the, the folks in the HR world call moments that matter, someone has a need and we want to make sure that they can one, go to the same place to get that need met, have a consistent experience, whether they need something from IT, from facilities, from legal, from finance, from HR, anyone in that 17 groups of people who are fulfilling a need for that employee, we want to make it easy for them. Because uh, right now, uh, in a lot of organizations, the burden of understanding where you go to find something and how you get something and how you get a need met is on the employee, which takes them out of productivity for the thing that you hired them for. And, you know, it, it's little things, but those little things add up. If someone, you know, has to ask for something 10 times in the course of a year and they have to spend 30 to 45 minutes looking for that thing and figuring out how to, how to get that need met, that adds up over time. And then you multiply that across 10,000 employees, 100,000 employees, half a million employees. And suddenly you're, you're looking at a pretty huge productivity loss for a company and real impact potentially to, to revenue on the bottom line. Which makes sense. Um, you look at that scale, you look at effectively automating the, the delivery of work to the people to do the work so you can address that need. Uh, here's a question for you then. So why has this come out from IT? Why does it start with IT service management? Because theoretically, what you described there could have come from, I don't know, um, I feel like saying the word SharePoint, but you know other parts of technology and industry that have nothing to do with IT. Why did it come from IT? I think oftentimes it originates in IT because IT becomes a focal point for enabling the technology for all of these various groups. It's not so much that IT in many cases is sitting there with this great idea to consolidate costs and streamline and make people more productive. They're just sitting here uh, taking requests from facilities and HR and legal and finance and all these places to, to house these things or implement a piece of technology that these groups have individually bought. Or, you know, in many cases coming to IT and saying, hey, I know you have this tool that you use to track work and enable things. Can we use that too? So I think it's, it's been, for the most part, very opportunistic where there's been a pull on them to meet some technical need. 
And that starts a conversation, which ultimately leads to, hey, maybe we should consolidate how we deliver service across the organization. On the flip side, we're starting to see kind of emerging, especially in the manufacturing consumer product space, uh, a kind of a pull from the business around what they're calling global business services, which in my mind is a form of enterprise service management where you're actually making structural organizational changes to the organization to deliver service consistently from a single delivery organization across all of the various verticals within a business or enterprise. Definitely is is happening more. I mean, one of the questions that, you know, following on from Ian's question was, you know, um, why has it come from IT, but also why has it not happened sooner and, 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 you know, wherever it would have come from? Is it, is it just because we haven't had the kind of technology capability or is it just because it's difficult with lots of different organizational silos and, you know, dynasties and, and, and so on and getting everybody to agree to do it has been a serious kind of barrier? Yeah, I definitely think it's more the latter than the former. Uh, I think it comes down to uh, the fact that we all speak different languages. In HR, they think of, of their interactions on a case basis. In facilities, it's a problem. In uh, uh, finance, it's a request. And IT, it's either an incident, a request, or something else. And I think because of the fact that we all speak different tribal languages, it's been very difficult to coalesce around a single concept of service and how service is delivered until very recently. And to your question about technology, I think the technology has existed in some form for 20 or 30 years. But the reality is, is we have an abundance of technology targeted into the different buying centers within a business. So you've got Workday and other uh, applications that are targeted to HR. You've got SAP and other applications that are targeted to finance. You've got all of these different platforms that these teams use for their core business functions that have been extended to do some form of service delivery to help support them. So you have this fragmentation of all the different ways in which you can deliver service and essentially what boils down to religious wars around you know, their, their sacred rituals and the tools that they use to execute. And it is until recently that, that a lot of the organizations have realized, okay, it doesn't matter whether we do this in one tool or five tools, we need to find a way to make that experience, again, kind of bringing it back to experience, consistent and transparent for how we manage this. So the reason why I think we're all starting to see this isn't because the tools and the ideas didn't exist. It was because we all had different tools and different ideas about how to solve this in each of the areas of the business. And now we're starting to talk together because we realize we have more in common than we do different. How how do you go to market with that from the outside then, from, from the perspective of, you know, traditionally you talked about working for ITSM vendors and we all, we've all done that in different ways. And, and but you know the market, you know the you know the targets, you know the people to speak to, the budget holders and so on. How do we scale the approach to being able to go to an organ go and say, right, we're going to go to the industry and say we need to do this who, who, because because from a marketing point of view, sales point of view, resource wise, it's a bit of a nightmare. Who, you know, we've got lots of organizations and lots of different people to talk to. What, what's your take on that? Because, I mean, that, that does seem to be the the burning question. And I, I mean, I know ServiceNow, your organization has has been wrestling with that for a while because I mean, we're actually we're quite ahead of the game 
a few years ago in terms of trying to promote enterprise service management and to some extent kind of bringing back and going back in again. But I mean, what, what's your view on that now, Shane, with, with, with the benefit of experienced hindsight? Yeah, it, it, it tends to vary from organization to organization around how uh, that concept gets championed. Um, a lot of times, as you said, folks in IT are the ones trying to start that conversation, but it, it's very difficult sometimes to, it, as an internal IT organization, to speak with credibility outside of IT. And I always take it back, and this is an example I've been using for close to 20 years, is if you have a hard time as an IT organization helping someone reset their password in a timely manner, they're not going to trust you to transform business processes and deliver against things that are critical to the business. So you've got to have a, a, an establishment as a trusted source of technology transformation and have been proven to deliver on other business critical things to be credible coming to a business and saying, hey, I think I can help us figure out better ways to improve the way our employees experience the need for service and you know, drive some, some cost and consistency across how we actually execute that. Uh, where we see often more success in these initiatives starting is when they start outside of IT. Uh, you know, in, in many places, we see HR becoming the champions of employee experience and trying to drive consistency across, as I said before, those moments that matter in an employee's journey from recruitment to retirement or, or leaving the role. So it's very interesting to see where the champions arise. HR is a common place. Another place we're seeing is a lot of organizations are really focused on transformation. And I know the term digital transformation is, is becoming quite trite and overused uh, for the last four or five years. But I, a lot of organizations have gotten to the point where they actually appoint someone who's responsible for some form of transformation. So we're seeing you know, chief information and digital officers, chief transformation officer roles appear in a lot of larger organizations. And oftentimes they're the ones who become the champions for this concept of let's transform these legacy work patterns and these legacy ways of working into something that's, that's much more user-friendly from an employee point of view, from a partner point of view, et cetera and figure out how we work smarter across these service delivery organizations. And ultimately that leads to a conversation about, well, if all of these things are delivered in a very similar manner, why can't we make them more consistent across the board? So, you know, going back to the question is, you know, who, who should be championing this or who should we be targeting in these conversations? I think oftentimes especially from the vendor side of the world, we try and you know, get to the CIO or someone in an IT organization that's making technical decisions, when in reality, the best place to start is someone who's making business decisions about how they transform the employee experience overall. So it, <clears throat> it sounds like, um, going back to your point about the ability to do something as basic as a password reset and the credibility to, to be able to make any other changes that sort of function. So this is a maturity as well. This is something you see in organizations that have moved beyond coping and are now moving to, we want to change how we work and do things much better. So it's, it's definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah that, that desire to change and transform is critical. Yeah. If, if you're trying to force an organization to change and people don't see the need for it, it's going to be very difficult to get the kind of coordination and handholding necessary to get people to think, put aside their own departmental priorities and look at a common goal for the organization. Yeah. It's funny. You, you used the word experience about four or five times as you were, were talking there. 
I think we should. Lots of people suggest different meanings for ESM. We've had all sorts of different definitions. Maybe it should be experience service management. That one might fit. Yeah, it, it's funny you mentioned that. One of the things that I've been advocating for for the last couple of years is this concept of experience architecture, which is someone in your organizations who are responsible for looking at how your end users experience technology and making sure that for similar user journeys, you have similar experiences. So if I'm an employee and I need something from all of these different groups, I go to the same place. I have a very similar experience and I have a set of expectations that are similar about how I'm going to be updated as this request moves through the process, how I'm going to be communicated to, uh, what, what sort of time frame I can look at. So all of my expectations are consistent across all of these different areas, regardless of where I kind of originate my request from. And this is a higher level or a horizontal level of, of management and guidance outside of silos or across the top of silos. And is that connected to what you're saying about um, GBS, Global Business Services? Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so, so GBS is, is something we've definitely seen emerging for the last three or four years, uh, for the most part. Uh, probably a lot more acceleration of that uh, since the beginning of the pandemic, where they had people working from locations that were different from you know, just being able to walk up to a counter in a corporate office and ask somebody for something. So getting more consistent, you know, achieving scale for people who are working from just about anywhere in the world, uh, essentially, becomes much more critical when you're, you're operating you know, with 80 plus percent of your workforce working from their home offices. So GBS really is kind of ESM, at a very high level of maturity where not only are you changing the entry point for that employee experience, but you're transforming and making organizational decisions and consolidating your delivery centers for service into the same places. So you don't have an IT service desk per se, or an HR service desk. You have a service delivery center where you may have folks who are experts or skilled in IT or HR, et cetera, but they're all using the same tooling. They're all trained consistently. They just may have different subject areas that they're responsible for and different skills, which they excel at. Uh, but I'm see, actually seeing more and more where they're combining skill sets uh, across agents to deliver that first level service, regardless of what the ultimate uh, industry or enterprise vertical that they're delivering support for. Yeah. So your first line agents are generalists across all of those delivery areas. Yeah, I, I, isn't that what we used to call shared services? It, shared services, exactly. So 20 years ago, we talked about shared services and that concept. N none of this is new. We're not reinventing anything. I think we're just finally at a point where we can have conversations and the technology that has more or less always existed is much better understood by all of the different personas and all of the different buying centers for what it can do for them. Oh, certainly. I mean, I, I, I see it. Agree in the last two, three, four years, the the kind of conversations and, and the discussions. I mean, I, I do interact much more on on a number of different areas, whether it's consulting or training or just talking about you know products and so on, with enterprise architects for a start. That that's one. And but but enterprise architects that are actually business people, if you like, you know, so that they've got a brief to look across the organization. I mean, it becomes more and more a problem the, the bigger, you know, the bigger the scale, obviously, the more, the more 
set in their ways that these um, organizations are. I do know one really, uh, it's a really well-known media organization, global, based in the US, but we've worked with them where a lot of that stuff has just been baked into the way they do. So for example, their service management tool set, as I would have known it, is about 20% of their corporate tool set that they built themselves. And, you know, to, to me and, and probably many of, many of us, it's like, well, why did you bother building that them, yourselves when you could have gone and bought something? Well, actually, they built it to do what they wanted to do. And, and from day one, it was architected to be HR, finance, you know, ordering stuff internally, holidays, IT incident. You know, the whole thing was just built. And, and you can sort of go, well, maybe not as great in many ways as what you could have in the market but actually it's doing the the important thing which is working across the organization and anything that goes into it has to be baked into that and you know when you're at the point where it's in in place you go well that's fantastic can't change (laughs) but you know it's like how you go from the current situation which is lots and lots of these repositories and silos to that that's where they started I mean, that's obviously the challenge, and that's that's the fun of it, I suppose. Do you share the same view about, you know, that, that scale becomes a real issue, the bigger and, and you know, the more challenging? Because And then it's not about technology, it's about politics and so on. Yeah, I'm going to tie it back to something you made kind of early in that, in that comment, is the, the role that enterprise architects are playing in organizations today is very different than it was even three or four years ago. Um, I think Gartner about a year or two ago put out a, a brief about the, the role of enterprise architects becoming more and more important in a lot of enterprises. And it used to be enterprise architects were focused on technology roadmaps, when you're going to retire certain devices, when you're going to bring on new features and functionality. And the role of an enterprise architect very recently in the last year or two that I've seen is transformed to be more 80% business focused and 20% technology focused. You've got lots of solution architects that are deep dive specialists in technology and can get down into figuring out how a specific piece of technology enables a specific business outcome. But the role of the enterprise architect is to look across the enterprise and say, how are we gonna use technology as a whole to enable these business outcomes that we're driving for as an organization? And what platforms are the most likely to be used in a given business situation? And they're, they're taking a more and more important role in conversations with the customers I'm working with in helping drive and understand where key technologies can enable things like enterprise service management and global business services. So kind of tying it back to, you know, the question that you had is, what am I seeing? I'm seeing a, a, a fundamental shift in how we think about how technology is used to enable these business outcomes. And, you know, I'm also seeing experience being an overriding factor in a lot of it. So whether you're talking about customer experience, employee experience, your partners, your suppliers, your vendors, all of these experiences are being transformed. Uh, very recently had a conversation with a very, very large technology company that, that works in the communication space, and they're completely changing their business model. They don't want to be a product company. They don't want to be a services company. They are transforming into what they see as an experience-based model, meaning that what they sell and what they do is rapidly becoming a commodity. And they're going to differentiate themselves on the experience that they provide to their customers and users. So it's interesting dynamic and shift that we're seeing. And I think it ties very well into the enterprise service management conversation 
which at the end of the day is providing that consistent experience, not only for the person who needs something, but for the people that are in the middle servicing and connecting that work. The experience focus, this has come up a few times. So that, and we see it with service management as well. It's no longer about what you do. It's the effect of what you do. And we've commented in a couple of other podcasts, this, this parallel relationship with what we see in product management when people build technology products it's not about what the product does it's about the effect the product has on people so yeah. you don't design features you design an experience of using technology to get your your job done features just the way you get there it's like um you no longer buy a car to get from a to b that's not the reason you buy a car you buy a car for a nice warm leather seat and a decent radio and a really good screen because everybody's got a car that goes from A to B. It's not the going to B, it's the experience of your traveling that people are buying. Yeah, the, the, the network effects of focusing on experience and how that helps transform every aspect of what you do as a company are tremendous. Hmm. And I think it's something we're just starting to understand the impact of and how do we measure that? I mean, yeah. we've been so focused on, you know, hard dollar cost savings, soft dollar cost savings and what that means and return on investment that people who and companies who invested in experience and have seen exponential growth and these large knock on network effects happening by simply transforming the experience, even if they have an inferior product, you know, if people feel good about it, they're going to have brand affinity. They're going to be more loyal to that brand. They're going to you know, recommend that to other people. And that includes companies, right? As an employee, if you feel like the experience you have in the day-to-day as an employee is great, you're going to tell people in your network about it. You're going to have loyalty and affinity towards the company that you work for, as opposed to if every day you're you know, experiencing a high degree of friction in every part of what you do to execute the work that you've been hired for, you're going to be frustrated. You're not going to have that affinity. You're not going to have that loyalty. And the same thing goes, I mean, cars are always a classic example, as you brought up, heated seats. If I get in my car and I hit the gas pedal to get from point A to point B, even if that's just to get down to the corner grocery store for 15 minutes, if I enjoy that experience, I'm going to be more likely to continue to buy cars from that brand. If I have a horrible experience every time I get in the car, you know, I'm going to want to get rid of that thing as quickly as I can. And I'm never going to want to buy another car from that dealer because I didn't like the experience. Yep. So yep. all of that is, is transforming, I think, the way a lot of companies think and the way they work. You know, it's no longer about cost. That's really good. Just rounding up very quickly, what do you think organizations need to do to really embrace, you know, to, to make the experience economy or the experience approach work if, if, I mean those that haven't got it and the early adopters and so on but I mean, if you were if you were really wanting to transform your organization your CEO what would be the kind of couple of things that you really need to do to get that result yeah I, I think a lot of companies are starting internally first focus on your employee experiences and even focus on small segments of that employee experience you know, HR seems to be the place where a lot of energy and excitement is being generated today around driving a consistent employee experience. And usually it's a pairing of HR and IT getting together first to drive these things together. You know, think about, you know, joiners and leavers, employee onboarding, offboarding. Those are areas that so many companies still haven't gotten right, even though we've been talking about it for 20 years. And it's the first impression someone coming into your organization gets, and it's the last impression they have when they leave. Yeah. So if those processes are, are fraught with friction and pain, um, it, it becomes very difficult 
for someone to regain trust in that brand overall. So focusing internally, focusing on the things that are important, the first impressions, the password resets. Again, we're 20 years we've been talking about password resets, and it's still one of the biggest call drivers of just about every organization we deal with. Uh, and even the ones who have managed to have some sort, some form of, of self-help, self-service around this still get a number of phone calls, emails, chats around this topic. So let's fix the things that, that we deal with every day first. Let's create a great experience around those and build from that foundation. Sounds like very good advice. Thank you very much, Shane. That's a really, uh, really good conversation. Thank you. So we covered a no, uh, that things coming out there, the experience, you know, just just really focusing on the experience and and the rise of the enterprise architect. I think are, are a couple for for me out of that. These are these are trivial matters. Ian is now going to ask you a serious question, Shane, um, which yeah, I hope are, you're prepared for. There are much more important important matters at hand here, which is, uh, as you well know, the tradition of the Enterprise Digital Podcast is to ask our guests to recommend their favorite drink to our audience. What would you like our audience to experience uh, in their hand as they stand at the podcast bar? You know, given my background, the obvious answer should probably be prison hooch. Uh, but, <laughs> but having sampled it in the past, uh, I'm going to recommend that uh, people go with a nice, smooth, well-aged bourbon. Bourbon. Very good. We, we've had a few serve, serve neat in a Glencairn glass, really? of course. So, so not a Jack Daniels and Coke with ice then? No. You're breaking my heart, Ian. <laughs> breaking my heart. I, I am fascinated by the prison hooch. <laughs> that, that, that sounds really interesting. You must tell me about that sometime. It's relatively yeah. easy to make. You just need a, a lot of organic scraps and time and a good uh, hiding place. The, the organic scraps, I was already moving. My mind was going in that direction. It's like, what's in it? Mm, no, I think I'll just stay <laughs> off the wagon. For that from, one, from, um, from, from the man who grew up in the land of Haggis, questioning prison hooch, I don't, I'm not sure. Well, don't ask what's in it. <laughs> Thank you for that. How do how do people get hold of you, Shane? What's the what's your go to place? Uh, I'm I'm still out on the Twitters uh, at ITSM Pundit, which is you know a handle I've been had for about ten years and have contemplated changing a number of times, but it fits. People know me there. You know, you can also find me at the Technobiotic Podcast. We've been on a hiatus for a while, but uh, we may uh, restart that at some point in the near future when we can talk about something other than the pandemic. And uh, those are the best places. Uh, I spend a lot more time probably on LinkedIn these days than any other social platform. So you can also find me there. Uh, real easy. Just uh, search for my name on any of those or my ITSM pundit handle on Twitter. And I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. Okay, well, thank you for that. Um, it's been really, really good um, content. Really great to have that discussion with you. And I hope that we can meet up in, uh, in person soon. And um, actually, we met just before the pandemic. We had a curry and a couple of beers here Indeed. in Croydon, I have to say. 
Oh, the glamour. glamour. Oh, it was the the the, the last uh, the last space outside of my family I saw before I went into lockdown was was uh, Barclays. So oh, I'm sorry about that, Shane. Sorry, it's all right. The, the nightmares have stopped. Oh well, okay. And then it goes into a second phase. Okay. Thanks again. Thanks, Shane. Hope to see you soon. And uh, thanks, Ian. We'll see you next time. Cheers. Thanks, Shane.